Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Unstoppable teams. Now, that may sound like an amazing place to work. And the question is, how? So that's what I want to focus on today. And I'm going to do this with someone who is himself unstoppable and who's also teaching other people how to be unstoppable and how to create an unstoppable team. So my guest today is Alden Mills. Alden began taking control of his life at age 12 when his doctor told him to learn chess because his asthma would keep him from playing sports. So his first goal was to conquer the asthma, and he went on to achieve extraordinary things in sports, academics, military, business, and philanthropy. He became a nationally ranked rower, a gold medalist in the Olympic field, and the captain of the freshman and varsity teams at the U.S. Naval Academy. And as a Navy SEAL, he led his platoon through multiple missions. That does not sound like somebody to me who gave in quickly to a diagnosis of asthma, but we'll ask him about that in a minute. After the military, he founded a business called Perfect Fitness with annual sales of 90 million U.S. dollars, over 40 patents, including the perfect push-up, the perfect pull-up, and so on. And now Alden has several books, but the two we're going to talk about is call, are called Be Unstoppable, The Eight Essential Actions to Succeed at Anything, as well as Unstoppable Teams, the four essential actions of high-performance leadership. He's been featured on ABC Nightline, CBS This Morning, more and most importantly here with me on Out of the Comfort Zone. You can get a lot more about Alden at his website, Alden, A-L-D-E-N, dash Mills, M-I-L-L-S dot com. Alden, welcome to the show. Thank you, Wanda. It's a real pleasure to be here, and I love what you do with Out of the Comfort Zone. Thank you very much. Well, it sounds like you're an ideal candidate for getting out of the comfort zone. I can't help but ask you that 12-year-old mindset. Here you are, your doctor says, go learn to play chess. And somehow that just didn't sit with you. So what were you thinking at 12 years old that says, I'm going to conquer asthma? Well, I have to be honest with you. My little 12-year-old pea brain at that particular moment when the doctor said that to me, and he said it in this kind of high nasally Boston accent, because that's where I was from. Like, oh, I see what his problem is. He's born with smaller than average set of lungs and, and he's got asthma. He needs to lead, learn, the, learn the game of chess and lead a less active lifestyle. It was my mom that came along while I'm having a pity party for myself with my chin down on my chest and crocodile tears coming down my face that said, now you listen to me. As she took, she took these long French cuticle nails and dug them into my forearm and said, no one defines what you can do, but you. Now, I'll get you the medicine, but you've got to decide what you can do. Now, of course, I didn't get it that day, right? I wanted her to release the grip because where my mind had gone was, chess. How am I going to learn the game of checkers? I'm terrible at checkers. How am I going to learn chess? And she, she was the one that kept saying, listen, you've got to go out there and try. And I was one of those fortunate kids that had parents that just kept whispering in my ear, 
go try again. Get up and go try again. And that's how that pivot in my life really started was a couple of people pulling me aside saying, yeah, we know what the doctor said. Now you go define what you can do. Yeah. I love that story, Alden, because it's not a negative story as in, you know, like no child of mine is going to not be on the sports field, yada, yada, yada. You can do it. You will do it. It's not that negative version. It's the positive version. You could, you decide what you want to do. Go try again. Go do again. Um, and by the way, the, you know, my mom was an art teacher. She wasn't some Olympic candidate or something along those lines. And, you know, speaking of that, by the way, uh, I was an Olympic gold medalist at the Olympic Festival. I want to make it clear to the audience members that I was an Olympic gold medalist. Right. That's a little bit different of an animal. But I did get invited to the Olympic team. And she would say, like, I would never think about going to the Olympic team, but you might. You keep going. Right. She wanted me to originally she thought I'd be a painter. Well, that didn't work out. And the whole point was they just let me go down that path and they just kept saying, go try something else. Do it again. Keep going. Keep going. Which, by the way, when we get to that topic is what it's all about when you're leading a team, right? You want to get inside people's head and help them understand that the first team they've got to lead is the one that's talking to them in here. And the more you can be that voice to help them say, I know what you're thinking. I know you're thinking you need to learn the game of chess, but you've never told me you've liked chess. You've said you like to go row a boat. So let's go figure out how to row that boat. Right. So getting control of that voice in your own head is the number one step and deciding for yourself what you're going to do about it. Okay. So you've done a lot of things. Like you were in the Olympic field, and I don't care whether you won a gold medal or you were just in the Olympic team or you were just there supporting the team. I still think that's a pretty big accomplishment for anyone. So good for you. Well, I don't want to put anybody down that's an Olympic gold medalist because that I was not. I, I did do well in the Olympic tryouts, but um, I want to make that clear. Fair enough. Fair enough. And then you're a Navy SEAL, which in the U.S. is a non-insignificant kind of step. So that's a big deal. And led a team to do a number of things as well. And then you created your own business. And it sounds like you were quite successful in that business. So why have you turned now to writing books and helping people figure out how to do this themselves? Why does that matter to you? You know, it was interesting. I had led three different SEAL platoons. and I loved leading these platoons. And when I finally made the decision to leave, I decided that over a few different of missteps along the way, hey, I'm going to go work in a business that's been, or an industry that's been a part of my life um, up until this point. And that was the industry of fitness. And then I decided, well, I'll figure out some products to invent. And I went through and we created these different products. And then after we had created about over a hundred of them and had lots of them patented, I started realizing, oh my gosh, we've created all these great products and people are still struggling to take control of their body. In the business Perfect Fitness, we had created this manifesto that I called the perfect promise. And that idea was take control of your body, 
and you'll be able to take control of your life. Because the same steps that you need to take control of your body, the self-discipline, the focus of focusing on the things you can control are exactly the same formula, really, to succeeding in any other thing you'd like to do in life. And I then decided that it really wasn't about the widgets as much, although we make some great widgets with the perfect push-up and pull-up and ab carver and such. But it's really about working on this muscle first before we start working on our biceps or abdominals or our glutes. And I made a transition to that point of going from a fitness entrepreneur to what I call more of a coaching and content entrepreneur and helping people understand there are some very basic but hard frameworks that if you deploy them and if you have the courage to stay on that task, you can accomplish pretty much anything you want to put your mind to. Okay. You have to make decisions. Well, it comes back to the same theme I've heard from you all along, which is basically to say, I get control of my mind. I decide what it is I'm going to have people define me as. That's the story, not anything else, but it starts with sort of the mindset. So let's talk for a minute about your Navy SEAL experience before I take a deep dive on everything else. And I know a lot of people are fascinated with sort of military operations, a lot of mythology about it, a lot of movies that support that one. What do we need to know about Navy SEALs and how Navy SEALs work and what have we got wrong in our own head? Your five-minute pitch on what's important about that experience. Number one, the large majority of all Navy SEALs are huggers. Number two, we care a hell of a lot. Number three, no SEAL that I know of is looking to die for his country. Mm-hmm. Now, people will be like, well, wait a minute, you guys are the super patriots. I'm like, oh, we're patriots, just along with everybody else out there. And remove the word SEAL and throw in Green Beret or Delta or Marine Corps or Air Force. So we all have these special operators. Remove special operator and just put in an infantry person in a company. The mere fact of the matter is, Nobody goes into battle wrapped in an American flag saying, gee, I can't wait to take a bullet for our country today. No. Where people end up going above and beyond and doing these heroic things is because they've created such deep emotional bonds with the people around them. And the bonds are so tight that when they walk into battle, they're no longer thinking about their own backs. They're not wondering what's going to happen behind them. They're only focused above them because they know in front of them because they know everybody else has their back. And when you get in that kind of an environment, well, then you're on your path to being unstoppable, not just for yourself, but as a team. So, and I've heard of people say the same thing. Um, And as I've talked to people who've been in the military on both sides of the Atlantic and in various forms, they all tell very much the same story that the bond that exists between you and your fellow comrades, and you know you've got each other's back. Um, So what is it that creates that kind of chemistry in the team that lets you know everybody has your interest at heart? They're going to cover for you. Well, the very first thing is the relationships you build and how you build them. 
right? I call it making that initial connection. And that initial connection can happen in lots of different ways. One, you could walk in with all kinds of credibility, like, oh, that's the person that was on this team that did X, Y, and Z, and they know what they're talking about kind of thing. Well, that's all great. That's all the superficial thing that gets me enough interest to say, yeah, I'd like to try and work with you. But what really it comes down to is your consistency. It's your consistency to do what? To care for each other on the team. Are you putting the team before yourself? It's great that you're consistent, but you're only consistent about worrying about your gear and nobody else's, about your hide and no one else's hide. Well, that's a different kind of level of consistency that won't fit in with the team. But I will often say when I'm out around the world speaking is like, look, consistent care connects. And the more we're after showing how much you're willing to serve, and I will say to lead is to serve and to serve is to care. All the reasons we connect in the first place and build a relationship is so we can understand, can I trust this person? Can I really trust this person and not just what they're saying, but what they're doing? Is their body language matching up with them? I mean, how many people will know, like, you know, they're saying the right things, but I'm just not buying it. I just, it's not clicking with me. Well, that's because a large portion of our communication is actually coming from body language or tone, nothing to do with the words itself, right? But all those pieces come together to build trust. Trust becomes the platform which sets the wheel in motion to then get after achieving, respecting, and empowering. And that is this loop that I call the care loop. Trust sets in motion to achieve, respect, and what was the last one? And empower. Right. And that's what creates the care loop. Okay. So now... Explain to me each of those four. So trust, I get. I think we all get the concept of trust. I think we understand very little about what I need to do in order to get you to trust me or what it is you need to do for me to trust you. I don't think we know that mechanism. So tell me what each of those four are. Yeah. So the the CARE loop is an acronym, uh, being a military guy. I love acronyms. And especially acronyms that are in alignment with what I want you to remember, right? Mm -hmm. What I want you to remember about the heartbeat of building a team is that it's about caring. Mm -hmm. It's about caring for each other and showing how much you care. Teddy Roosevelt has this great quotation. I suspect he said it's something like this. No one cares how much you know until they know how much you care. Right? (laughs) So care is the acronym of connect, achieve, respect, empower. And it's a loop. I want you to think of it as a circle. Now, They're not all sequential. They layer on top of each other, right? We're constantly connecting. It's not like I'm just going to stay in my connecting phase until people trust me. Then we're going to go try and do something. No, each one of these things, you build more and more trust, right? Okay, you know, Mr. Mills showed up on time every day this week. You know, I trust him a little bit. Oh, he's saying what he's doing about vacation or whatever those things are, right? after you've established this trust and as you're establishing trust, then you have to look at what a team is built for. Teams come together for one reason and one reason only to achieve something, right? It's not like, Oh, let's just build a team because it'd be fun to be on a team. No, no. We need to build something very specific for that mission 
the mission, whether it's in the civilian world, I'm not talking militarily here. I'm like, what are we after? What are we trying to achieve? Why are we building a team in the first place? Most people don't align a meaning with a mission. If you are really detailed about what the mission is, people know the purpose. They know why we've come together. They have a front sight focus on it, right? So many people forget to align the meaning. But even if you've built some trust, connected people together, and have an achievement, like, hey, this is where direction we're going, you're still just at a directed group. You haven't transitioned to a team yet. The way you transition to a team is then moving to respect. That's the third component of the care loop. And respect isn't just about having mutual respect and being nice to people. It's about inviting the conflict in. You see, the goal of respect is to create contribution. You want everybody on the team to contribute. You're not after a one-sided team where you do everything I tell you to do, you're my robot and I'm the brains, right? That's not what we're about. Inviting a conflict in is hard because it requires the leader to remove their ego, get step aside and say, hey, this is what I'm really not good at and I really want to hear from you. What do you think we should be doing? How can we be better at this, right? And then when we've invited the conflict in and people start going, oh my gosh, he or she listened to my idea. It's a great idea. And I'm going to think more and contribute more. Well, now the machine of the team becomes a learning environment where it's continually improving. Now we're into a team dynamic and going from the next phase, closing the loop is empowering. And why do we empower people? And why is it so hard? Number one, we empower people because we want them to have ownership. We want them to make the decision if we're not there. We want them to move as quickly as they can, but doing it with the intent of what the team is all about. And why is it so hard? Because it means the leader has to give away his or her power. And that's hard for leaders to do. Again, ego, insecurity become the main blockers there. We've worked so hard to finally become the leader. Why do I have to give it away? Because they should be doing what I tell them to do because they're here to work for me. Wrong. Most people can't even get to the respect or empowering phase because they're still stuck in the thought process that the team should be about me. I'm Mr. or Mrs. Authority. No, no. The whole team dynamic is about action. And that's where the respect comes from. So once that loop is closed and people start to realize like, oh my gosh, I don't have to worry about these other things because the team leader is taking care of me because they're serving me. And that's how I serve the team. Then you're moving into what I call a high performance team. And then the final piece is taking the care loop and expanding it outside the direct area of the team to your indirects. The four C's of your customers, your coworkers, your contributors, and your community. And when all of them feel part of your team, they won't let you fail. And then you're unstoppable. Wow. You asked for it, Wanda. I got it. I got it. There's a lot in there. And if I can just barely remember half of it, I think we're in good shape. 
I want to come back to something you talked about at the very beginning, and then I'm going to unpack a couple of these because I think there's some interesting parallels here. One is this notion of caring, of people believing that you care for them or care about them as a human being. I am completely convinced that if, you, if you're leading a team in a business setting and people don't believe you care, then you can chuck out the door top performance. You can chuck out engagement. You can chuck right. out genuine commitment. You can chuck out the ability to have an honest debate. Mm-hmm. You can chuck out the impact of your feedback. You can chuck out inf- innovation. You can chuck out customer service for that matter. Correct. But without that, we don't really do any of the things that leaders want us to do. And we tend to get hooked on the fact that you will follow me because I have the right idea. And it's not about the right idea. It's about how I feel about following you at the end of the day. If you don't care, then forget it. I mean, come on, let's be honest. In the political spectrum, forget your political biases. What are we trying to evaluate somebody on? Most politicians, in large matter of fact, they all kind of are talking about doing something in the similar thing, but you're more inclined to listen to that person versus that person because you trust that person over that person, right? That's the biggest challenge that so many politicians have is they're always out there stumping to try and build trust, but they totally mess it up all the time because they end up going back on their words because they, nobody feels they can trust them. Right. Well, and they also don't know their constituents. I mean, you see this all the time in a large company when you look at engagement survey data, you know, and the senior team will be so frustrated because once again, we've not hit the benchmark above 68% of engaged employees. Okay. How can your employees feel engaged if they don't know who you are? They don't have a relationship with you. They don't know what you're thinking. They they haven't heard from you. You know nothing about them. How did you think you were going to get them to say, my management team cares about me? Like, No. And I said the other day, even on inspiration, if I'm working for you and I don't believe that you care very much about me as a human being, you care about what I can produce, you care about my output engine, but you don't care about me as a human being, there is virtually nothing you're going to do that's going to inspire me. And you just said one of the phrases that I hammer home in my book on Unstoppable Teams. There will be no one that ever works for me. They will only work with me. They have to know that we're working right alongside. Sure, I may be above you in some org chart, but when we're down in the field together, we are linked arm in arm. And most of the time, I'm pretty sure you're better at a lot of things than I am. Mm -hmm. And until you actually have the confidence to tell other people, by the way, I suck at this, but you are really good at this. Help us. What do you think we should do? All of a sudden, people lean in. They say, oh, my God, you mean that? Did I just hear that right? I'm better than, oh, and oh, by the way, I'm not trying to compete against anybody. I'm trying to get the best out of everybody so we can do something to succeed because when we come together as a team, there are things we can do that no individual could ever do. And I want to be a part of that greater thing. I think people are longing for that. And I think they're desperately they're hungry for it. Right. So if I come to your care loop, this notion that, the, so the concept of care, great acronym for a lot of good reasons. And then you have this notion of connect, mm-hmm. that we get to know each other. We kind of understand each other a little bit. 
achieve. I love what you said there, that a team is not just for the purposes of having a team. A team is there to actually achieve a purpose. What's that purpose? What's it about? What are we trying to achieve? And way too many times that's not as clear as it needs to be. And you're right. It rarely gets tied to mission or meaning. I don't think it has to be some grand thing that we would etch into the walls. Just any team anywhere, what are we trying to achieve and why does it matter? You said the magic words right there as far as I'm concerned. You're setting the direction. Where are we trying to go? And then you're explaining why does it matter. And when you explain why it matters – Don't just go, well, global warming, it's our mission, and we're trying to cool the earth. Well, that's why it matters, because we just don't want to, you know, uh, get so hot we get sunburned. No, you want to personalize it, right? Why does it really matter? When we were in Bosnia getting ready for this mission to go hunt down this war criminal, the way they linked us to the mission was they put us in a couple of armored Humvees, drove us into a neighborhood where this guy had, and his goons, had just massacred a whole bunch of people. But there were a few children walking around, and I mean walking. They, were, they looked like little zombies with clumps of hair missing, and their hair was white, and they had this thousand-yard stare, and you'd ask our translator, like, well, what happened to these children? Why, why are they like this? I've never seen a child like this. And they're like, well, well, that child saw his parents murdered in front of them. Well, who would do that? Well, the lead guy that you're going after, he's the one that gave the order to do that. Now, why did they do that? (laughs) They did that because they knew they were sending us into harm's way. And they solidified why it was so important for us to catch this person and bring that person to justice. Right? That everybody has a mission. Mm-hmm. Every company out there, and if you can't figure out why it matters, then I would challenge you, well, why are you doing it? Yeah, quit doing it. It's not important. I'd agree with that statement. Um, I have, I'm not going to top a Bosnia story because there's an awful lot of, there's a lot in that one there, but I am going to give you a completely different one that is one of my favorite ones from a client. And this is a small company manufacturing parts that go on an airplane engine. Hard to understand why does quality here really matter. Mm -hmm. So what they did is they took the airplane engine that they were manufacturing for, they dismantled it, put it on the ceiling with arrows going into the parts that we make Mm -hmm. as a visual reminder of our mission. I love it. Everybody gets it. I got to do my job, Will, because of that one. So that's another reason, right? Why does it matter? Where are we going and why does it matter? Right. What are we trying to achieve? Even on the small scale, not necessarily the grand scale. All right. And then you went to respect. Now, I did not expect you to say and respect what you said, because most of the time people say respect is, you know, we treat each other nicely. But I loved what you said, that respect is about inviting the conflict. That means I need to hear what you're thinking, what you're not thinking, what you agree with, what you're not agree with. And I need to orchestrate that on the team. Not in a way that we get into a, you know, kind of can't talk to each other anymore, mm-hmm. but that we have constructive dialogue on what we need to do and are there better alternatives. And I'm doing that in order to find where other people can make their most substantive contribution. Correct. The formula for this, it's not really even a formula, it's more like a flow chart formula, yep. mm-hmm. is that conflict leads to confidence that leads to more contribution, right? Conflict, confidence, contribution. Now, how does that work? 
It works like this. Said leader walks into team and says, team, we know we're going down this route and we're trying to make these airplane parts, but they've come up with this new airplane engine and we've never made this kind of part before. How are we going to make this part? I think we ought to make the part using this machine. Somebody looks around the room and goes, that machine's not going to work. Wait, what did you say? I said, uh, that machine is not going to work. We need to go buy the machine that's across the street. That moment, right there. That's the moment where the leader has to decide if they're going to invite the conflict in. What's the conflict there? The conflict is somebody challenging the leader because the leader could naturally do this, jumping to conclusion, okay, we got this machine, how are we going to do it with this machine? And somebody goes, actually, that's not the machine we need at all. We need the one that's across the street. That's the challenge, right? Mm -hmm. Everyone's thinking we should go right, but somebody goes, actually, I think we need to go left. That moment is the critical moment that can bring everybody together when the leader goes, you know what? Shame on me. I was speaking way too fast. Victoria, tell me about that machine across the street because the only machine I know is that one that's right underneath our nose. Well, I've been working over there and that 3D printer one, it can make everything under the sun. I'm like, hmm, Victoria, will you set it up? Can we go over and look at that? Victoria takes the lead, sets it up, goes to look at the 3D printing machine that may be able to make the new part for the new engine of the airplane. And everyone walks over and they're like, Victoria, this thing's fantastic. We can't just make this part. We could make a whole bunch of other things. Victoria, this is fantastic. You got to take the lead on this. What just happened there? Victoria is like, oh my God, I had the courage to raise my hand. Why did she have the courage to raise her hand? Well, they built up enough trust over the time that I feel like I'd be treated fairly. Even if I said something stupid, they wouldn't make fun of me because people at the end of the day have a lot of vanity and they're like, I'm worried about looking stupid and I'm worried about being made fun of and blah, 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 totally normal things. But this leader got at least far enough to that point where Victoria raised her hand and now the leader's like, I'm going to empower you to go lead this team, right? But that's how it happens is that she first had the comp, she had, you invited the conflict in, she had the confidence to then say, well, this is what it's all about. And now she even more confidence and she started creating up a team to go over there and do it. And now she's contributing even more. When I say invite the conflict in, I'm not asking you to invite a name calling derogatory conflict I'm talking about a different point of view, a different opinion, right? Respectfully. Right. I personally believe that there are two characteristics that if companies and teams got right, they would win hands down. One of them is this care. Just imagine if we had an organization where everybody felt genuinely cared for, what that would do. And the second one is this notion of conflict. Every problem we need to solve, every, you could almost look at every major mistake a company has made almost any time, and somebody somewhere knew something that was relevant for not making that mistake. The question is, do we hear it? We only hear it after the fact and not in the time. And I think it's fascinating how much, how uncomfortable we are as leaders with conflict, with the challenge of our authority, with the challenge of our expertise in effect is what you're saying, or with people of just a different perspective. And that's the story for inclusion and inclusivity cultures. Right there, that's it. You get that part right, the rest kind of can fall out. So yeah. confidence. 
Okay. Wanda, I totally agree with you. Uh, You know, and, and sometimes it's not even, it wasn't heard. It wasn't even voiced because someone's like, well, I don't care. They don't care about me. They're going to let them fall on the sword. They're going to do something stupid. Oh, I know that's not going to work, but they don't listen to me anyhow. So Mm -hmm. why do I bother? Well, and all it takes is one time when somebody does raise something in the room and the leader shuts them down and then nobody else is going to follow. I mean, we see that all the time, not for intentionally bad reasons and not always because the leader's ego can't take it, often because they're worried about control or they're worried about risk or they're worried about costs or they're worried about something and they just shut it down without even realizing it inviting the conflict. That's critical. And then you said empowering, because you did that with the story of Victoria. She goes, is now empowered to go set up something, do something, investigate something, and that creates a lovely loop. So the care loop. Connect, achieve, respect, empower. Now, you went to another step, though, which is to say, it's well and good if that's my team, but we now extend that beyond my immediate team to the broader organization, to the customers, the coworkers, the community, and any other contributors you have in the pipeline. And that's what makes them unstoppable. Talk to me a little bit about how we extend this out from the small team into the bigger world. The first thing is getting everybody to have their blinders open to understand that their team is only going to be as successful as a whole host of other teammates that provide inputs or outputs for the team. A SEAL team is only as good as the platform that can get us there, a submarine, a helicopter, a C-130, an armored vehicle. That's part of the team. Right. We don't own that vehicle. We don't own the driver, but that's a key component. I mean, many missions have failed just because of the infiltration or the insertion platform breaks, doesn't work right, right? keeping the the metaphor going on this SEAL team metaphor piece, but it applies across everything. Well, okay, now we're there. Well, who are we going to communicate with? Hey, we need some help. We got to drop some bombs. We can't take on an enemy force. We're 16. We can't take on 10,000. How are we going to do that? Right. And I give an example in the book about ODA 555 when they were the first team in on Afghanistan and how they took on a superior force. Well, they had the Air Force and the Army and the Marine Corps, and they had built relationships with all of them. And then they had to even go build relationships with their customer. Who is their customer? The Northern Alliance. And they were all fractured and they had to build relationships with all of them. Well, it's the same thing. If you're an entrepreneur and here I was, the entrepreneur creating the perfect push-up. Who's a relationship that I had to build with? My retailers. I had to show that I really cared about them, not just that, well, I'm the only one that's been the perfect push-up, so you just enjoy what you can get, Mr. Retailer. No, it doesn't work that way. I mean, it can work that way for a little while, but what you really have to do is bring the customer in, explain the customer, hey, these are our goals. This is what we're about. What are your goals? How can I help you? And their goals can be different than yours. They're like, hey, listen, I don't want to be less than six weeks out of supply. Can you help me with that? Because if you can help me with that, I'll make my number for the quarter. Well, what's yours? Well, I need to grow in shelf space. Oh, well, I might be able to help you and tell you some other things if you're helping me with my needs. And then a relationship builds. Contributors. Who's a contributor in the business world? Well, whether it's an airplane part manufacturing or fitness products, It's the manufacturers who supply you the raw materials, right? If those things break down, well, then you don't have a business. 
And so we became partners with our manufacturers. We wanted to understand where the raw materials were coming from. Who's putting these things together? And, you know, giving them T-shirts and giving them rubber mats and hearing and eye protection. Hey, you're part of the perfect team, even though you're 6,000 miles away. How about the communities you operate in? How about the coworkers that are in the back office and maybe they're just supplying things for your team to go do what you need to do because you're a sales team or a business development team? They're still part of your team. You need them. Oh, by the way, they need you too. But the more you call out each one of them, the more they'll feel like, hey, I got to help these people get this thing done because each one of their outputs could be an input for you. The hardest one to rally around is community. You really have to show the community again and again why you're in it and why you're here to help them. Right. A lot of people will go, oh, yeah, I write a check to the community once a year. This is from ABC Corporation. No. What's the real way to do it? It's to give your time to get in there, roll up your sleeves to the community and say, hey, we really care. And this is why we do what we do. And the community will respond. And respond to it as well. Yeah. I can't tell you how many people I have coached who are – on the cusp of a big breakthrough in their career. And the thing that's holding them back more than anything else is coworkers who don't feel that they're respected or support personnel, some of whom are quite sophisticated in their various functions, who don't feel like they're part of the team. And you know you can't do it. You may be brilliant. You may have a great idea. You may have a whole bunch of stuff, but you cannot actually deliver on your promises without the entire entity. If you can, then you got the wrong company. So go back to who is that extended community. It's a critical component. You got to work inside before you can work outside. All right, Alden. If I were to summarize this, unstoppable team means a genuine sense of care, which is we connect with people. We have something that we're trying to achieve, a mission that matters, we have respect for each other, which means we invite the conflict, and then we empower we, you know, other people get on with it. We take that sense of care loop, not just in our immediate team, but into our broader teams, which means our coworkers, our community, our collaborators, and our customers. Mm-hmm. Everybody feels that they're part of it. Everybody feels that they're connected. And in your experience, that makes for an unstoppable team. Correct. The book that we've been talking about is Unstoppable Teams, The Four Essential Actions of High-Performance Leadership. And as we've just said, it's about the CARE loop, where CARE is an acronym, but it also means showing people that you care about them. Connect, achieve, respect, and empower. Extend that not just to your team, but to the broader organization, community, connectors, suppliers, customers, and that's what makes you unstoppable. So Alden, I want to shift the focus for a moment. And I want to, you know, everybody's talking about how do we deal with uncertainty. Mm -hmm. And in your experience, you've had an awful lot of planning and training on how do you deal with preparing for things that you couldn't have anticipated and then coping with them when you were surprised. So what's your philosophy on this preparing for the unknown? Can we do it? How do we do it? How do we think about it? The number one thing I want to start with is a mental shift in dealing with uncertainty. Always, always remember this. For every amount of uncertainty, there is also an equal amount of opportunity. 
However, it comes in a different wrapper. I need you to buy into that philosophy. Now, for my teams, I can go through oodles of examples of what would happen in this certain uncertain environment and how it became an opportunity for it. But you have to understand that the moment that comes up, I don't want you to be scared about it. I want you to be excited like, ooh, here's a new way we can learn about something. This is going to help us get stronger. At the time, it may be like, oh, this is miserable. I can't believe this happened. But are like, all right, we got to get it figured out. Now, before you even go out into a mission plan or a business plan, one and the same, why do we do a business plan? Why do we do mission planning? It's to get ourselves mentally prepared for a whole bunch of different contingency plans. In SEAL Team, we would joke that we'd spend 95% of our time on 5% of the things that would go wrong, right? There's so many different things. We Most of the time, we'd list the top three, and then we'd get creative and be like, all right, give us a couple of zingers out there of things that would be a real challenge, and how would we deal with them? Eventually, there'll be things that we didn't think about that would happen. The moment the ramp opens and you're jumping off the ramp, whether it's out of a submarine or an airplane or a Humvee, the plan goes in the backseat and we get a frontside focus of what's actually happening on the ground at that moment. But you always have to be thinking that there is always an opportunity to continually be learning. If you are not in a mindset of continually learning, the moment we get thrown with an unknown it's going to be a blocking force and we're only going to look at it as a blocking force and not an opportunity to get around it. Who is it? Um, I think it's Eisenhower that said he may have taken it from somebody else. Planning is everything. Plans are worthless. I think you just reiterated to that. The planning exercise is really important to anticipate, but usually it's something you didn't anticipate. That's the opportunity. Now, all right, fair enough. I get the philosophy that I see an opportunity. And I get the notion that this is a chance to learn and that we should have that mindset. But here you are, a SEAL team out there. Stuff going wrong means somebody dies. Mm -hmm. So how do you turn that into an opportunity to learn when as much as a life is on the line? Are we talking about that person has already died or no. we're in a situation the where- The fear. It's the fear. It's dealing with the fear. So the very first thing is fear has got to be used as fuel. It can't be used as a way to stop everybody. And I would often say this, if I don't get people that are scared when we're going into that mission, I'm worried. I right. want people to have fear because fear will bring you that point of staying focused. Too much fear will literally activate your amygdala and put you in fight or flight. <laughs> you won't be creative. A very simple technique on why you want to continually be able to be thinking creatively because the whole deal of dealing with something unknown is thinking creatively is you do a box breathing method, which is four seconds of breathing through the nose, hold for four seconds, exhale through your mouth for four seconds, hold for four seconds. They call it a box because it's just four seconds on each piece. Why are we breathing through our nose? Because we're activating our prefrontal cortex. Why is that important? Because there's creative thought process that goes up here and it will sidestep the amygdala. The amygdala is a little almond-sized piece in our brain that will stimulate a fight-or-flight reaction. And maybe you've heard of it when people are like, oh, that person wasn't thinking right when they just flew off the handle and got all emotionally charged, Right. 
When we get into those situations, Viktor Frankl used the term stimulus and response. The stimulus and the response. The space between the stimulus and the response, like what I was talking about when you have this unique opportunity, the moment Victoria challenged me as the leader to say, hey, I think there's another way to do that. Stimulus and response, same thing. The unknown stimulus comes in. Wait a second, take a breath. What is the stimulus all about? What is this unknown? Can we evaluate it in a different way before we make a knee-jerk response that will send us in the wrong direction? The more that you train for those kinds of things, and by the way, part of preparation is training for it, mm-hmm. then we'll be better prepared for it. So what does that mean? It kind of means what this whole show is about, Wanda. <laughs> and yeah. that's about training about being out of the comfort zone. Right. Why before we had 2003 going to war in Afghanistan, we lost more people in SEAL training than we did in combat. Why was that? Because we were constantly pushing us out of a comfort zone. We didn't want that complacency. That's the same thing when you're like dealing with the unknown. What's scary about it is it's out of the comfort zone. That doesn't necessarily mean it will harm you. It does mean that it prevents, it brings you friction. When it brings you friction, it can also bring you a path forward. But if you're not trained for that, if you're just thrust into a Navy SEAL environment, it's going to be really, really challenging. It's going to set you up for failure. So if you're the leader walking in going, all right, we're getting everybody out of the comfort zone. Well, don't throw them in the deep end of the pool if they don't even know how to swim yet, right? Right. That comfort zone, you've got to go in levels. Same thing with dealing with the unknown. Get people that have experience and mate them up with people that don't have a lot of experience. Create a swim buddy program, mentorship, and say, okay, that's probably the unknown for you, but it wasn't for me because two decades ago, we had to deal with that. Let me explain to you how that went. And when you start sharing that and closing the experience gap of dealing with the unknown, then people get more confidence. So I gave you a whole host of different things to deal with on that, but those are a bunch of different ways to deal with the unknown. So if I try, first (laughs) off, the unknown is a good thing, so I change my mindset. That's the number thing. There's an opportunity here if I can get my head around where the opportunity is, and that means get out of the fear mode. That means I have to think about it. I have to get creative about it. Now, let me explain to you, you know, some of these don't always work if you're going to add it as a Navy SEAL component. Is an IED a good thing and it's an unknown we drive over? Absolutely not. <laughs> right? Right. So now we're in an after action report and we're trying to figure out how do we prevent driving over an IED, right? Those are, this is also where sometimes, you know, I, I have more time now as a CEO than I do as a SEAL, and I want to stress to people that not all military metaphors will work Work. for a civilian setting on Right. Right. The good news is for a large portion of the civilian settings, we're not looking to have lives on the line. Some places there are, making airplane engines or taking care of people in hospitals. In all of those cases, prior preparation and doing um, 
different types of out of the unknown training scenarios are really important aspects of it. And you start blowing that off, then eventually people are going to get her fight and flight and that's not going to be helpful in dealing with the unknown. Great. Yes. Let's assume for the moment that we're talking about something goes wrong with a customer and a customer is unhappy as opposed to we're making a decision that's going to cost somebody their lives, livelihood. So, you know, my plan for how I was going to deal with that market isn't going to work. We're in the middle of a pandemic. So now I'm afraid I'm not going to meet my numbers. That's the level that we're talking about here. And so see that as an opportunity. What's the other, what can I learn out of this? You also talked about the four box breathing method, which I love. You just introduced mindfulness right in here. Why you do it mm-hmm. is the, the space between the stimulus, somebody says something and your response. And it's your moment to say, what is this about? What is the unknown? What does this reveal to us? How do we reevaluate? And so mm-hmm. just slowing that stimulus response down enough to look at what the opportunity is in this scenario. Did I do okay on that one? You did. And, you know, now you gave me that example of the customer and somebody, a customer presented a problem that no one's ever dealt with. And now you're dealing with the unknown. Now this spans into what's the commander's intent. So that's a military metaphor for basically, okay, what's the overall mission of our company mm-hmm. is to take care of the customer. Oh, and how do we do it internally? Well, we take care of each other. Oh, Okay, so really the guiding value here is I need to take care of this customer and do whatever it takes. Okay, well, Mr. Customer or Mrs. Customer, I really want to understand this problem. I'm going to tell you we've never had this problem before. Please be patient with me. And let's walk through it so we can make sure we can take care of you. And then I want to make sure that everyone on the team knows this unique problem so we don't ever have this problem again. That's dealing with the unknown. And how was that dealt with? It was dealt with a value system, a commander's intent, or the bigger mission of why it matters and what we're doing here, right? They all start to play on top of each other. It isn't just the mindset of like, I got it no matter what, but I'm also part of a team and what the team's operating philosophy is and the team's operating philosophy then ties into the culture of the organization. And if the culture of the organization is... I don't care about the customer. Just get the profits. Don't take any more time on the phone than you need to, right? Zappos, what did Zappos care about? Zappos only cared about super intense taking care of the customer. They had one person make over a 10-hour customer care call with somebody, and they're like, I spent my entire 10 hours taking care of one customer. What did they do? They made a press release over it and sent it out to the world. They wanted to tell everybody to the top of the world, look how much we care about our customer. That was a huge unknown, right? So there are a lot of comp- com- components that go into this unknown question. I mean, we could write a book about this one. Right. I think there is a need for this book. There's a lot, a lot of people struggling with unknowns. Let me give you a different kind of scenario and get your advice on it. Mm-hmm. So someone I've dealt with who is a kind of person that likes p- to plan, you know, much more comfortable when there's a plan. I know what the plan is. I know what everybody's going to do. I know what my team's going to do. I know and I'm happy to go follow the plan. We spend a lot of time and energy preparing the plan and doesn't like to go off plan, just their personality style. Their intention is all good in all the ways we'd want it to be good. And suddenly the pandemic hits 
and every plan they had as a team for achieving their mission is out the door. Unless you think, oh, from two years, two months from now, we can go execute. Oh, well, another two months from now, we can go execute. Oh, well, maybe we can't. That kind of delay, 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 delay is disheartening. Mm -hmm. So what's your advice to that leader about how to be less wedded to the plan? Number one, everybody's going to take that plan personally if they're involved in the plan. Mm -hmm. Leader must understand that it always starts with the emotional connection. And so the first thing in the case, now you threw in as your example, dealing with the uncertainty of a pandemic. Bam, pandemic hits. Oh my gosh, our plan has totally changed. The hell with the damn plan. The first thing you got to deal with is the safety of everybody on your team in this pandemic. They're freaked out. They don't care about the plan. They're like, well, what about me? What about my kids? What about my family? What about the people I'm caregiving for? My neighbors who are 85 years old, right? Mm -hmm. That's called an ambush. That's exactly what we spend a lot of time training for. It's the greatest unknown there is, an ambush, right? An ambush is nothing more than a crisis when we're bopping along with a whole bunch of certainty and then all of a sudden, bam, ambush occurs. Certainty goes out the window, we're rocked back on our heels and we now have a whole pile of uncertainty. What's the very first thing we do in an ambush after we shoot back and get out of the field of fire is we take stock on each other. Who's hurt? How many bullets do we have? How are we feeling? Does anybody need anything, right? You gotta rehuddle. Got to reevaluate the situation. We got to take a moment, get off the back of our heels, and then move to the balls of our feet and be like, all right, new plan. Who's got ideas? We got to go in a different way. Remember the mission's intent. Mission intent here, the commander's intent is to take care of our customers. And how do we do that? Well, we start by taking care of each other. What does each other need? And then we move forward. So even in that moment, we're right back to your core model about care. In the midst of a crisis, that works, isn't it? Yeah, funny thing, in the midst of a crisis, I'm going back to check, you know, getting out of the line of fire, whatever that looks like for you in your particular business, so that we're not in the middle of a burning building or the equivalent, and then reevaluating how's the team, how's everybody doing, what do people need. Then we can go to great, what do we do? How do we rethink about this? And we're right back to the care. We're right back to inviting what's our mission? What are we trying to achieve? We're right back to saying, how do we invite conflict here so people are giving ideas? We're right back to empowering. This is, all right, fine, you take that. Somebody else takes something else. We're right back in that same loop of connect, achieve, respect, and empower. I love it. Alden, we're out of time. My get what a great conversation today. Um, my guest today is I Alden. It. Thank you for having me, Wanda. It's a great pleasure. My guest, Alden Mills, again, two books, Be Unstoppable. And the second book that we've been talking about most today is called Unstoppable Teams. And again, check out Alden's website for more materials, more blogs, more articles, more insights at alden-mills.com. And join us next week for another episode in getting out of your comfort zone. If you'd like to know more about some tactics with Alden, then check out our subscription service at outofthecomfortzone.com. Thank you for joining us today. 
Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.